everybody, it's Michael here, and you're listening to the Good E-Reader Radio Show. Doutor, ele ainda dói mim. E Cebolinha mandou avisar quando a fliqueza chegar. Muitos pãezinhos há de degustar. Magali faz a cadência da situação. É que essa padaria. Nunca vendeu pão E tudo que é de ruim sempre cai pra cá Tem pouca gente na fronteira, então é só chegar O dinheiro vem pra confundir o amor O santo pesado que tá sem andor Hey everybody, welcome back to the Goody Reader Radio Show. My name is Michael, and of course I'm joined by Digital Book World's own Jeremy Greenfield. How are you? Good, how are you, Michael? Not too bad. So I guess the big news that has been basically gripping the entire business world and our world is Barnes & Noble's recent investors call. Some people have said it was a train wreck. Other people said that they basically did a total 360 from their last investors call. Give us the deal on what exactly happened. Well, uh, Barnes & Noble had said fairly clearly that it would no longer be producing color tablets. It would rely on third parties to produce them. And the thinking was that Barnes & Noble would focus on app apps and distributing through other tablets, distributing its content through other tablets. Um, and in this call, the, the new head of Nook, Michael Husby, said, uh, actually, we didn't mean that. What we meant is we're going to lean more on our third-party suppliers to minimize the risk. Now, I'm not a supply chain expert, but from what I understand, you know, retail, like, uh, you know, companies, technology companies like Apple and Amazon and Barnes & Noble already lean on these suppliers really, really hard. So I'm not sure what Barnes & Noble means about what it's going to do here, um, but it sounds like it will be producing color devices uh, still despite its massive setbacks that, that it had in the marketplace. Um, you know, the ironic thing is I think one of the only things the company has done that people have cheered was quit making these color devices. Um, and, and now it seems to have reversed that position. But of course, this is following yet another quarter in which the company is just hemorrhaging money. Yeah, it, it seems like they did release some fairly interesting stats. I think they said that they sold 10 million nooks total uh, since they started selling hardware. 
Yeah, and that is a lot. That is a lot of stuff. I mean, the thing with hardware, though, is a Nook device that you sold three years ago may not still be in circulation. Uh, and really what the company needs is its devices to be in circulation so people can buy the content on them. As has been widely reported, you know, these companies don't make a lot of money on the devices. The margin in consumer electronics is really tiny. What, where they make the money is on selling content, supposedly. Yeah, I, I think one of the problems why sort of their latest generation of hardware didn't pan out was basically what they said about how they overestimated demand for the products and they were sitting on a ton of inventory, which is why you would be hard-pressed to go a few weeks without seeing another price drop on either a tablet or an e-reader. Yeah, absolutely. They were just dropping prices like, you know, like it was their job. Um, and you can get some very good deals on these devices when it seemed like you know they wouldn't be producing another uh, Nook HD Plus tablet. It, it almost seemed like you'd be getting a deal on a collector's item. Um, but, but that's just uh, simply not the case now, apparently. And the company said it would be releasing one new device uh, before the end of the year. I mean, from where I'm sitting, you know, the leadership doesn't seem to be articulating a uh, strategy that investors and observers like ourselves really find compelling. Um, and you know, thinking about the company's business, uh, now that Len Reggio also announced this week that he had withdrawn his bid to separate the retail stores from, from Nook Media, uh, I just don't see clearly how it, they're going to turn it around. Yeah, it seems like their strategy is fairly convoluted with uh, no singular direction. And I think that that is making a lot of people very wary. You know, the fact that they totally reversed themselves out of almost every major point from the last investor's call, um, it's shaky. You know, if you reverse yourself and flip-flop, it's kind of hard to have confidence in a strategy because it seems as though whatever is the flavor of the month, that's what they're telling their investors. And it's very interesting to see whether, you know, Michael can turn things around and whether they're initiating some sort of manager shakeup or company-wide shakeup under the old regime. What do you think about, do you think Barnes & Noble will go in a new direction or do you think it'll be more or less status quo going forward the next few quarters? I mean, until this call, I thought it was going in a new direction. I thought the company was taking steps to um, split itself up, further steps. I thought that it was going to focus on making e-reader devices. I actually did think that, that was a, it was a strategy that seemed to, to kind of make sense for a way out. Um, but right now, I, I really don't know. Um, you know, you'd like to think that companies that have, you know, lots of people in them helping to make decisions, a lot of oversight, they have a board obviously, um, you know, hundreds of people work there, uh, that, that they would make fairly good decisions. But this just seems like, you know, shooting yourself in the foot uh, a little bit. It just seems like Barnes & Noble has kind of gone off the rails and so it's not really thinking clearly. But that's not how companies behave, right? That's how, that's how people behave. So I don't really know. Um, I'll tell you this, it was really interesting that a year ago, uh, all this financial maneuvering about a year and a half ago that made Nook Media a joint venture between Microsoft and Barnes and Noble. You know, it was hailed by Wall Street as great. Now they're finally unlocking the value in Nook Media. They're finally separating it from that slow growth business uh, retail that we don't like, that we don't think is going anywhere. And now a year and a half later when Nook is not doing so well, they're saying, when can we get Nook separated from retail side because it's just an albatross around this retail side's neck. 
so it, it's it's funny how things change so quickly uh, in this business. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think the biggest failing of Barnes Noble right now is to branch out into other international markets. Right now, they're only in the U.S. and only in the U.K. If you live outside those two countries, you can't purchase a Nook, you can't use a Nook, and you can't buy content on a Nook. And considering every other month you hear about Amazon launching KDP Select in Japan or Kobo expanding to another new market. Barnes & Noble has been one of the most static companies in terms of overall uh, reach because they're focusing on uber-saturated markets where every major player is really focusing marketing dollars, uh, research and development, and everything else. And I almost think that Barnes & Noble is shooting themselves in the uh, foot by not leveraging that Microsoft uh, connection by getting at least their ebook ecosystem available through Windows in almost every other country that Microsoft, you know, has a presence in. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I mean, it, really we could go on and on about the problems and the thing is from where we're sitting, you know, we're not in the hot seat. I don't know about you, but I'm not a Barnes & Noble shareholder. Um, and you know I don't have a stake in the company in any way at all. Uh, I'm sure from where the leadership is sitting, the view uh, they have a lot more information, and it's really easy for us to say, you know, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? Uh, and there are lots of things that we could say, but but it's much harder when you have to make those decisions. So, um, you know, I really feel for the people running that company. I feel for the people that work there. It's a it's a very very tough time, and I hope that in the next few months, you know, maybe three months from now, we're reporting that that Barnes and Noble has gotten a a really good strategy going, and it's turning things around, and and uh, they're starting to be more successful. I mean, if I'm a, a publisher, though, I'm really worried that this Nook thing is is crashing and burning, and you know, when we wake up a year from now, and it's going to be Apple and Amazon in the marketplace, and and uh, you know, then you have fewer partners and uh, less competition in the marketplace, and it gets scary. Yeah, no, I agree. I think. One of the beginnings of the end in terms of the Barnes & Noble overall ecosystem is when they signed a deal with Google to have Google Play on all of their tablets, uh, thus negating their own curated app ecosystem or at least putting a, a lower priority on it. They still are going to maintain it, but it seems when they went in the direction of Google that they were acknowledging that their own ecosystem was weak and was not offering a compelling enough advantage for people to buy their tablets and their quest to play games and download whatever apps that they wanted. Yeah, I thought that move was a, was a really good move, but ever since then they've made five or six other <laughs> direction changes in, in, the tablet, uh, in the tablet market. So I think only time will really tell uh, with what happens. I do know that um, you know, as a consumer, I'm going to buy the next Kindle device that comes out. I'm pretty sure Amazon's going to be around for the, the, the duration of the, the life of that device. And actually, my sister's just got me a paperwhite for my birthday, so I don't have to worry about that for a while. Must be nice. It's a good, great device. I'm sure that you have your choice of, of e-reading devices, um, and I would highly recommend this one. Nice. So, in other Barnes & Noble news, they have released Nook Video to branch out on iOS and Android. So Barnes & Noble famously, when they originally launched the Nook HD and Nook HD+, Plus, they unveiled Nook Video. And this was a way for people to rent and purchase television shows and movies. Uh, Barnes & Noble made a deal with a company called Ultraviolet, which means 
if you buy a DVD or Blu-ray from Walmart or a lot of the big box retailers, uh, they will have ultraviolet stickers. And what they'll allow you to do is redeem that online code for the digital version. So if you use a Barnes & Noble tablet, you could redeem your ultraviolet code and then watch that movie on your tablet. Um, this was only on the Nook HD and HD+. Now Nook Video is available on iPads, iPhones, and any sort of Android device, as long as you live in the U.S. or the U.K. What this means is that if you have a prior model of the Nook, say the Nook Color or the Nook Tablet, Nook Video in the past was not available to you, but via the Google Play App Store, it is available. So it suddenly uh, allows those older Barnes & Noble devices to have a little bit more relevance because you actually have the full video and television ecosystem. What do you think about this move? You know, what I was going to ask you about it, and this is what my concern is, is does this move the needle for the company at all? Well, I mean, in the end, it's more sales you know, for them uh, that they wouldn't otherwise get. I don't know how a lot of people might be buying videos and television shows via Nook on the iPad when you have iTunes or Netflix, which are deeper ecosystems. So, yeah, absolutely. Do yeah. you think it helps the brand at all? I mean, it, it, it gets more Nook apps out there. So if you're searching for Google Play or searching on uh, the App Store for Barnes & Noble, you'll get their kids, uh, kids system, you'll get their reading app, you'll get their video app. It's just more content out there for discovery and visibility, I think. I mean, let's say I have a Nook, app, a Nook, a Nook uh, tablet. And, the, and I now have the new video locker, I think is what they called it, or uh, you know, the video shelf uh, as part of my experience. Um, you know, does this dissemination of the apps across the rest of the ecosystems make it more attractive for me uh, maybe to buy an iPad as my next one if I'm used to using Nook, um, or to just have an iPad around. Like, you know, I have a Nook and my wife or my girlfriend or my family or whatever, they have the iPad, and then we can all share in this sort of Nook video account. Is that how it works? No. If you have, like, an iPad, you have to log into a specific account. Barnes & Noble really gets on people's heads if you're logging into more than one device or more than one account on different IP addresses or, you know, uh, in different geographical ranges. And you could, in end, have your account suspended and lose all of your content. Because remember, when you buy digital content, you're only licensing it. You're not buying it. So, you know, I, I leave with the conclusion, having talked to you about it, the expert, that this does not, in fact, move the needle. Um, but, you know, I think, I think uh, whatever anything Barnes & Noble can do to improve its brand and to bring more dollars in the, in the door, as long as it's not negative ROI, uh, is probably good at this point. Yeah. If there was some sort of incentive for people to download this app, like to get, you know, two free videos or two free television shows, uh, but there's really no draw. You install the app and then immediately you're prompted to make purchases without knowing how's the quality, how's the HD look. There's a lot of questions and there's no free content in order to test the waters before you actually jump into the ecosystem. You know, Netflix, you know, get a 
few week free trial. You can get a lot of free content on Apple devices and even Google Play in general. I mean, there's no shortage of uh, video apps out there from Love Film to whatever to be able to appeal to new users by immediately giving them the full experience without having to spend a dime. Sounds like you say two thumbs down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, Unfortunately. E-Ink has announced that they have had a $33 million loss uh, in the last financial quarter. This is basically the slow time of the year, so it's not too surprising that they actually saw, you know, um, declining revenues. Uh, they have said that at the end of Q3 and Q4, they will see a profit, and this is mainly because uh, Kobo, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble are all releasing at least one e-ink-based reader, and e-ink holdings is the company most famously uh, known for making the type of e-paper technology that you'll see in almost every mainstream e-reader out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think... Despite that, what the company says, the fact of the matter is, is that in the largest markets, the, the most mature markets, e dedicated e-readers are on the wane. And uh, personally, I love my e-reader. We were talking about that earlier. And I have a tablet as well. I have a smartphone as well. And I, my e-reader fits in perfectly. So I don't understand necessarily why that's happening. But of course, you know, one cannot decide what's going to happen in the markets based on one's own personal experience. Uh, so I, uh, I think that this is probably a trend we're going to continue to see from e-ink, uh, in, unless there is some way that, um, you know, a free e-reader comes out, for instance, uh, from a manufacturer that partners with a uh, content provider or telecom. Uh, to, to flood the market with with inexpensive devices that could that could sell content, or a new market opens up where for some cultural reason um, e-readers become incredibly popular at the expense of other devices. I don't think either of those scenarios are incredibly likely, but um, I think what we're witnessing here is is sort of a decline of the e-reader. I don't think it's going to go away entirely, but it, it's certainly losing out to tablets. What do you think? We could devote hours to talking about this very issue. Uh, what I will say is that I agree. Uh, I, I do think that e-readers on, are on a decline, and you don't have to be a genius to read a Nielsen or a Bacher or uh, an e-ink report on sales, on metrics, on adoption, on new hardware purchases. More people are buying tablets just because you could do a lot more with them. More people are buying, uh, less people are buying e-readers because they already have one and there's not enough compelling reason to upgrade each generation for a new e-reader because let's face it, the technology has, doesn't really grow in the e-reader segment like it does in tablets you have crazy new features, new resolution, uh, new hardware to make the experience a little bit more robust, whereas e-readers, the technology is rather static. You, you're not really seeing dramatic changes. Uh, but what E-Ink has said is that 70% of the company's revenue right now is done in e-paper screens. What they're saying is by the end of the year, 5% will be devoted to alternative business models. And what exactly are alternative business models? Well, it's signage. It's 
digital signs for your grocery store. Instead of having the static price tags, you could have e-ink screens. And from a computer, you could automatically change the price rather than having to send you know, your 16-year-old stock boy to change the prices. You could even have head office change the prices on everything across multiple stores at the same time. Uh, we're also seeing e-ink screens at airports, mass transit, and things like that. So e-ink is very bullish on, on this. And I actually reached out to some people at Freescale, which are often, when you buy a an, reader, an like a Kindle or a Kobo or Barnes & Noble that uses e-ink technology, e-ink and Freescale have been long-term partners because Freescale basically has all of the processing power to get the most out of e-ink. And Freescale was also uh, very bullish about e-ink expanding outside of e-paper and moving into alternative business directions like signage and uh, new applications for their screen technology because even they admit that e-readers are not really going to see the massive increases in revenue like they did in 2009 when I think E-Ink had almost a billion dollars in profit. Yeah, uh, you know, it all sounds really good, right? It sounds smart. Supermarket signs that are E-Ink signs and you can just change the price from, from the office or whatever. But, you know, you, you're, you're betting on this company and this company is betting on the idea that people are going to change how they behave. And anytime you're betting on the idea that people are going to change how they behave, you've got to really check yourself. Um, it, it's rare the idea that makes people change how they behave. So I think that, you know, of course the company is going to be bullish on this because what other option do they have? Are they going to say our industry is in decline, investors pull out, you know, there's nothing more to see here? Um, there, there's really nothing to say. They have to find a way to diversify and to reinvest. So, I, you know, I don't have an opinion on whether this is going to happen or not, but let me ask you this. Do you think that we are going to see any major adopters of e-ink for signage? And if so, when? You know, it, it all depends on how strong their marketing team is. As you know, I mean, with a good uh, marketing campaign and, and hiring the right uh, PR firm and marketing firm, you could hype anything to death and, and, and get sales. You know, but you have to pound the phones. You have to fly into meetings. Ian could make a go of this if they really tried. 5% is not a lot of their revenue, but they do have all of the, at least the technology in place to be able to make that happen. And it's all about just hiring the right people, contracting or outsourcing out the sales, and you know, just pounding the phones. And you'd be surprised how many times people will say yes if you're calling them personally, fly into their, you know, office, give a presentation. Some people are maybe willing to, you know, pull the trigger on that. Good old-fashioned sales. I like it. Yeah, well, I mean, at least e-ink's trying. If you remember, the first and second generation of e-readers was using Infrared Touch, which was a courtesy of a company called Neonode. And Neonode, before e-ink, was almost the de facto standard for uh, e-readers because it was really, really cheap to do. But then Neonode lost Amazon as their primary customer, and they never diversified into other segments. And when's the last time you heard anything from that company? 
this is the first time. Yeah, <laughs> Neonode and E Ink were basically doing battle uh, with each other for a number of years in order to, you know, have those big contracts with Kobo, uh, with Barnes Noble, and with Amazon. And when Neonode started losing all those contracts, it basically, you know, that's why E Ink made a billion dollars in 2009 because they signed deals with everybody at the expense of Neonode virtually going out of business. So it's very interesting to see that if you don't diversify, then you're going to die. Diversify or die. Yep. Um, so let's turn a 360, if I, if, if I may. And I think it's a 180. Yeah, maybe. So <laughs> you have published a very popular article lately over at Digital Book World on ebook discovery sites. And I know this is something that we've talked about before and you've put together a, a comprehensive list. Tell me a little bit about that. So, you know, the way we look at ebook discovery, and the way we think publishers should look at it is that, you know, it's not a problem for most readers. About three-quarters of Americans read a book in the past year, and of those, the median amount of books they read is six or seven. And if you only read six or seven books a year, it's not hard to think of the next one you're going to read. You just go to the bestseller list. Maybe you're reading books in a series. Uh, you, you, know, you have your friends and family. A lot of people have stacks of books on their night table or whatever that they're trying to get through, and, and they're you know, fairly slow readers. So it's not hard for those people to find new books. But there is a segment of readers, a really, really important segment for the industry that does have a tough time finding the new book that they want to read, and that is power readers, people that read 50, 100, 200, 300, or even 400 books a year. I mean, that, that boggles the mind that someone could read 400 books in a year. But there are people that do it, and they have a ter terrible time finding something new to read. First of all, many of them are genre readers. They read romance or sci-fi and fantasy, and they've read everything that's good, everything that they like. They've really just blown through everything. Um, and two, you know, when you read that many books, it, it is very, very hard uh, to just keep up. You know, whatever the, the, the new crop of bestsellers is coming out or whatever, that's not going to satisfy your needs if you're reading hundreds of books a year. So with that in mind, we uh, contacted a power reader, one of these power readers who reads three or 400 uh, mostly romance books every year. And we had her go through and look at a little bit over 20 of the most popular book recommendation sites for her purposes to see whether they worked for her. And the, uh, the analysis she came up with was kind of startling. You would, I, I, what, what do you think she came up with is the number one uh, site to uh, read books? And, and if you've read the article, I, I guess you don't have to guess. Well, to be honest, uh, before we talked, I, I glanced at the article and I saw a number of, of sites that I use, but I would be remiss to say if I remember the top one, I would probably say either Amazon or Goodreads. Amazon and Goodreads were up there, but Bookish was her favorite site. She liked the mix of editorial and recommendations and machine-generated recommendations, uh, and she liked the look of the site, which, as we know, is important. Uh, but Goodreads and Amazon had also very high rankings for her. You know, Goodreads lost out a little bit because, you know, for her, her friends don't really have the same taste in books as she does. And even if you're a power reader, you've got to think that you know your friends probably read five, six, ten, maybe even twenty books a year. They're not keeping up with you. They they don't have much to offer you in the way of recommendation. You've heard of everything that they're reading, probably. Um, so Goodreads, I think, lost out a little bit because so, for the social side of it, wasn't really that important to her. Um, but sites that had an interesting angle, she also really liked this site. What should I read next? 
basically you just go to Watch I Read Next, type in a title of a book or, uh, or an author that you like, and it just gives you recommendations. You don't have to log in or anything. And the recommendations were a little bit offbeat, and she really liked that. Um, but I think you know, the interesting thing here for publishers is that if they are going to focus on book discovery, um, you know, they really need to think about the different kinds of people that are looking for books. And power readers is this segment that is really, really, it's a small number of people that's hugely important because of how much they read compared to the rest of the population. And when you think about the way power readers discover books, um, it really does go beyond Amazon and Goodreads and, and out into that wide ecosystem of books. So uh, everyone should check out that article. Uh, it's at digitalbookworld.com, top 10 book recommendation platforms. And we know we'd love to hear from people if they've used these platforms, what they think of them, um, uh, which ones are their favorite. And we've had a couple of people actually write in saying, you know, hey, you missed this one that, that I love, and we'll, we'll probably take another look at this in six months or a year. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a, a valuable tool for people because when I saw that list, I mean, I live and breathe the digital publishing industry and I wasn't even aware of some of these companies. But then again, I'm not the type of person that struggles for a book to read. You know, writing so much for Goody Reader, I find myself reading less because I'm researching more and flying all over the country. And I don't really read too well in planes and, and in trains and automobiles and things like that. So I'm reading less, but I do follow uh, a fair number of seminal authors. Sometimes there's autobiographies or, or tech books that uh, you know are, are fairly compelling. Uh, recently I read uh, that book by the, the Google guy. I think it was Eric Schmidt. That, uh, oh, that book was scary, right? Yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, it, it very interesting read. And I mean, that book was like hyped up about six months in advance before it actually came out. So um, very, very interesting read. So for me, I, I used to read, you know, 100, maybe 200 books a year. I think I'm right around about 60 uh, right now. So That's I read still a lot more than most people. You should not, not be ashamed of that. So, so uh, how do you determine what, what's the next book you want to read? What, do you use any websites? Do you use Amazon? No. Um, to, to be honest, I, I buy about 80% of my books at retail bookstores. So you, you use kind of the browse method. I, I want to read something. I walk in there and see what's good. Well, for me, I, I like bookstore culture. I, I like being in an environment with, with other people that are there because they love books. Uh, browsing websites and, and digital ebook discoveries are really solitary uh, method. And reading it by its very nature is fairly solitary. So I like to be able to juxtapose this solitary uh, endeavor with a little bit of social activity. And I find that going to a bookstore, just chatting up random people, um, you know, just at least being around other like-minded people, I find is uh, one of the big reasons why I still shop at used bookstores, indie bookstores, and chain bookstores, because it's, it's hanging out with, like, kindred spirits. And... Oh, I, I, for me, um, I don't buy a lot of digital books. I, the, the digital books I tend to buy are often like throwaway books, like trashy fantasy books and whatnot, books that I wouldn't want on my bookshelves, but I tend to buy way more physical books, um, not to show them off on my bookshelf, but just because I, I like hanging out in bookstores. Amen to that. Yeah. So 
you know, we, we've covered a lot today. You know, uh, Barnes & Noble has really been in the news a lot uh, in the last few weeks. So it, it's very interesting to see what they're going to do. It's Q-Force coming up. I mean, everybody is releasing new products. And there's going to be some uh, big news coming out uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, Kobo, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Sony are all going to be announcing uh, new e-readers and tablets uh, from now until basically about the end of December, and this, or September rather. And this actually includes Apple as well. Do you think that this is going to be a big year in terms of device sales, new hardware, people upgrading, new presence under the tree? Absolutely. I think we're going to see big years of this growth uh, for the next few years, um, you know, as tablet adoption increases. But of course, you know, you can't go past 100% adoption. So uh, this will slow. And does it slow this year? Does it slow next year? The year after? I, I think we'll see another big year this year, but it's really anyone's guess. How about you? Well, you know, when new iPads come out, and especially new iPhones, it's sort of Apple's going to be releasing their fleet of devices. I think that that's probably going to be probably the most successful device line uh, of the year. Amazon will probably come in second just because of their, their name value and their global reach. And they're basically refreshing their entire product line. And if you look at even what sells on Amazon, the, the Paperweight and, and Kindle Fire are still their best-selling products almost a year after that they were originally released. So that tells you that people are still attracted to those uh, tablets, even though that the price has not really come down dramatically, whereas Barnes & Noble has the same sort of uh, devices that were re released about the same time as Amazon. Their prices have almost fallen in half, yet more people are still buying the competitors' devices at almost you know half the cost or greater and that that tells you something that people are still fairly loyal to the brands that uh, they have had. You know, if you're an iPad One user, chances are you've purchased other models of the iPad. You're not really going from the iPad to a Kindle and then going from a Kindle to a Kobo and going from a Kobo to a Nook. People are still fairly loyal to their their choice brand. And if you look at the people that have the most success selling hardware. I really don't think that the paradigm will change very much in terms of one company leapfrogging the competition and selling the most devices. Well, only time will tell. Yeah. So you've uh, been listening to the Goody Reader Radio Show with uh, Michael Kozlowski and uh, Jeremy Greenfield of Digital Book World. Uh, we will be talking to you again next week. So everybody take care. Um. Do you 